First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. What's up, Wisecrack? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast. My name's Michael. Show me the meaning! Oh, I fucked up already. I'm so sorry. That was a great Show Me the Meaning. Uh, that'll be the last mistake. My name's Michael. I am here with Ryan. and awesome fans. And Austin. Yo. And today we're going to discuss the 2019 film Uncut Gems by the Safdie Brothers, starring your favorite comedic actor, Adam Sandler, in a decidedly non-comedic role. Uh-huh. Um, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. My favorite actor is Kevin Garnett. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, of course. The only Oscar nominee from this film will be Kevin Garnett uh, and or one of the creepy bald guys asking for money. But before we really get into this... What were y'all's impressions of the film? Ryan, jump in there. Okay, well, I'll say I'll start this off. So uh, I'll start it off by saying I could not have been more excited for this movie. To me, the Safdie brothers are like probably the more most interesting filmmakers around today. Um, I just love what they're doing. They just got it going on, man. They know how to make a fucking how to make a tone, how to make momentum, how to entertain an audience with light, sound and 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 pictures and music um so i I think that they're the real deal they're great and um so anyway i I do think this movie is kind of uh, this movie and parasite are similar in the sense that they've been hyped up a lot for a lot of people Mm -hmm. i feel like a lot of people go into these movies thinking oh man i'm about to see something insane and they are however i think that that, uh both of them i feel like are are, uh, that amount of hype kind of allows for some people to kind of be let down at the end of the movie i think that if you go into this movie thinking that you're seeing this amazing adam sandler movie that i i don't know i don't i don't know if i I feel like some people might have been disappointed i was i was definitely shaken by the ending which i'm sure we'll go into in detail but but so basically my thoughts of the movie was that i was super on board with it uh uh I was really loving the ride I was on. And then it ends in the, the in, and you guys know what I'm talking about. And I definitely was shook. Like, yeah, I'm like, my initial th- uh, reaction. I mean, is, we can say we're all spoilers all the time on this show, right? So sure. Yeah. Spoilers. I just wasn't going to spoil it so early, but yes, at the, when yeah. the, the part when Adam Sandler uh, gets shot in the face, right in the uh, face. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, my initial reaction was, was hey, what is the point of this movie? What did I just sit for through for an hour and a half? Why was I on this ride for the end so abruptly? That's, you know, and then the more I've thought about it, the more time has gone by. And I, I do definitely think that's obviously by design and um, which we'll get into, but I, I love it. I love, I do think it's an intellectual way to end your movie, not necessarily the most emotional way, yeah. but in a way that that's cool. They're definitely trolling you in a way. And the, the you know, the, the whole, this, it does a very interesting thing at that moment where you're kind of like, you think you're seeing one thing and then you're like, oh, this movie is just about, you know, the randomness and chaos of life and, and the, you know, how, yeah, of course this guy's story would end this way by just pissing off the wrong guy in Brooklyn and then him blowing your head off because of his ego. Um, 
that makes sense for the context of what we've seen. You're not going to get the Hollywood storybook ending, which it seems like, you know, you're kind of getting, you know, with, with the montage of her taking the money to, to Vegas. Yeah. So anyway, I, I do think that, that they did something very interesting with that end. I don't, I mean, obviously it doesn't work for everybody, but uh, uh, I, I thought the movie was great. And then I, I, I also, yeah. So overall I'd give it eight and a half to nine out of 10. You know, it did not meet my sky high good time expectations. It's no fucking good time. Their Ooh. last movie that was like Brilliant. amazing and my favorite movie of yeah. 2017. You know, it, I don't think it delivers on that promise, but it, it, it was great. And uh, um, I can't wait to talk about it. Awesome, Ryan. There's so many great things that you brought up that I'm excited for us to break down later. Uh, Austin. Yeah. First impressions yeah. of yeah. Uncut Gems. Go. Yeah, totally. I, I think, again, it's not as good as Good Time, but that's because I think Good Time is a genuine masterpiece. And I know we use that word, but it is in like the pantheon of masterpieces of the last few years, I think, right? Um, but this film, I still think, is fucking excellent. I went in with very few expectations. So for people who don't know, we have a writer's room for Wisecrack where a bunch of people like talk shit and they share ideas and bounce ideas off each other. And this film was mentioned just in the sense of just being praised a couple times, right? Like, mm -hmm. so I knew that everyone in the white or the writer's room who I all respect had um, high opinions on this film. And then one of our producers, Joy, she reached out to me and was like, what did you think of it? What did you think of it? And so I was like, okay, if it's eliciting this much excitement, there must be something worthwhile here. So I went in with a little bit of like emotional expectation, at least that I was kind of excited for it, but I didn't know content. I didn't know twist. I didn't know anything at the level of narrative. And I, I was fucked up after this film, man. I couldn't sleep. It had me mm -hmm. inside like twisted in knots and then... You know, there's no catharsis at the end, and mm -hmm. I, it was really provocative, and I thought that – I actually think there's like a really interesting moral or ethical quandary that is brought up by that. Um, yeah. I thought that there were some really amazing performances. I tweeted out my takeaways were Kevin Garnett can act like holy shit. Mm -hmm. um, I was so surprised at that because usually athletes – I mean like LeBron did all right in some of the film stuff that he's done, but usually athletes are not – actors right i mean it's a very no. different thing he was fucking great in it like he like understood so good pacing and beats in the moment so i was really impressed with that julia fox he had a lot of dialogue a lot of dialogue like it wasn't just like cheap acting either it was like he actually was a contributor a big time contributor to a lot of scenes julia fox is first of all i'm in love with her but second of all she's going to be a star <laughs> this is her first yeah. fucking movie role she's going to be a star marvel is calling it's gonna happen um and then the sad isn't she just like a socialite from New York that they found on Instagram? Well, I think she's a socialite. No, she's, not, she's an artist. Uh, she worked, artist, artist, uh, Dominic. Sure, that's what I'm sure bit. that's what she calls herself. No, no, I've seen, wow. I've seen, I've, no, no, I've seen, I've seen some of her installations. Actually, I'm just kidding. I know, I know, I know. No, but really, oh, I've seen, no. I've seen interviews with her of some of her installations. She's pretty fucking cool. Um, and she's known them for like seven years, I guess. So they've been talking about this film for years and years and years. So it's not like some nice. some new search where they just found a girl with some cakes, which. Yeah. Um, but beyond oh, that, she's fucking amazing, dude. Like for someone who's never done anything before, like I couldn't be the scene with her and Sandler when they're crying. Okay. So she's going to be a star. And then my last takeaway is just the Safdie brothers just fucking get tension. So that was it. Mm -hmm. Oh, and Adam Sandler. I mean, I, I've always said this. I think comedic actors who understand uh, improvisation, their best roles are when they're doing serious stuff because they get tone, they get pacing, they get moments, they get beats. They don't force anything. Fucking brilliant. So that's my takeaway. I love the movie. It fucked me up, tied me up in knots, and I couldn't sleep last night. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. 
That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Wow, well, this is so boring because I agree on most things that y'all <laughs> said. Uh, really loved it. I do, to to piggyback on Ryan's point, it was an issue of there was so much expectation going into it. I sat down in a theater just so jacked up, kind of expecting mm. uh, to love it. And I, I did, but the biggest takeaway I had was almost emotional. I've, I can't mm. remember a movie I've seen where I was truly on the edge of my seat the whole time. There was a, a young woman sitting next to me who kept covering her face throughout the film. And I was thinking like, I'm, I'm right there with you. And then towards the uh, end of the movie at the pivotal shooting scene um, afterwards, I said to my partner, like, that's, that's crazy. You know, everyone just screamed at the end there. And she was like, no, that was, that was just you. Um, cause I just screamed, Oh shit. As loud as I ever have in a theater when he gets popped in the face. And we'll break that down more a little bit later. Um, but yeah, it was sort of a, a, a masterwork of building tension throughout. And I think that tension did something really interesting as an audience member. I really felt like I was a part of something happening there. And I even noticed in the theater, people kind of looking around at each other as if like, we're all in this together. This is crazy. What's going to mm. happen. And the Safdie brothers ability to do that with a film is, is mm. pretty impressive so impressive um, yeah. so i'm excited uh, to hear what you guys have to think about this but let's first do a quick recap uh for any listener who hasn't seen it yet if you haven't you should we'll run through this and we're going to get in some of the big ideas so without any further ado uh, our movie starts at a diamond mine in ethiopia but quickly transitions to the end of a colonoscopy taking place in new york city in the spring of 2012 where we see the colon of the film's protagonist howard played by adam sandler now our guy is a jeweler in new york city's diamond district and when we enter his shop for the first time uh, he immediately tries to offer a water to some goons and gets bitch slapped because they are here to collect money for a loan shark named arno they take twelve thousand and a watch from him right off the bat Now, he leaves there, flips a necklace to put money on a bet with a bookie played by iconic New York City radio personality, Mike Francesa, Uh, heads back to his shop and is greeted by NBA player Kevin Garnett playing himself uh, (laughs) and also is greeted by a box of fish that he's used to smuggle an Ethiopian opal into the country. Now, Howard shows this to KG and KG wants, no, needs it. So he lets him, quote unquote, hold it for a night and gives Howard his Celtics championship ring for collateral. Um, Howard, being an honest guy, of course, immediately pawns it, takes the money, and puts more money on a bet with his bookie on KG and the Celtics. Uh, He wins huge and celebrates with one of the weirdest sexting-based closet-hiding scenes I've ever seen. Nothing like that has ever happened in real life, but I'm glad it's in a film. Uh, Next day, he wants this opal back, but his assistant, Damani, played by Lakeith Stanfield, uh, with, with terrifying brilliance, shows up without the opal. They go on a rescue mission to Philadelphia. He gets abandoned, and that doesn't work out. Gets back. This is Howard again. <laughs> finally gets back to Long Island via bus to see his daughter's play, just in time to get jumped, stripped naked, and left in his trunk by Arno the Lone Shark and his goons, who we find out canceled his bet before he won. Things not looking good for Howard. He then heads to a club where he finds his mistress and coworker Julia, maybe or maybe not banging the weekend, also playing himself in a bathroom, and kicks her to the curb. <laughs> 
He finally gets the opal back from KG, Kevin Garnett, and celebrates at a joyous Passover dinner with his family, which it turns out includes the loan shark Arno, who is his brother-in-law. He brags about the opal in the coming auction in front of his family and convinces his father-in-law to come along. Cut to the auction where things get much worse. They reappraise his opal. It's worth a fraction of what he's assumed, and he has to get his father-in-law, Gooey, to jack up the price so KG will buy it, but he doesn't. And after he gets knocked in the throat, and tossed into a fountain by the goon squad. Finally, it seems like things are going well. Kevin Garnett comes through, buys the opal, gives gives Howard enough money to pay off Arno and clear his debts, thus leading to a happy oh my ending. God. But after talking to KG about how he's the Diamond District equivalent of an NBA player, he instead takes all the money, passes it through a window to Julia, and has her helicopter to a casino to put it all on KG and the Celtics, leading to the tense conclusion of the film where Arno and the goons show up, how he traps them in his bulletproof glass-covered entryway as he watches the game, and somehow it all works out. His bet wings big, and Julia uses a silver-haired friend to get the money, but the second he opens the doors, Howie gets shot in the head. Soon to be followed by Arno. He's dead. The end. The camera goes into the wound. Whew. So that's the Holy movie. Shit. What that's a movie. the movie. I know. <laughs> and we're going to talk about it. What a recap. But first, we quickly got to thank our sponsors who are making this possible. Today's show, sponsored by Skillshare. Now, I don't know about you guys. Um, do you guys have 2020 resolutions? I got one or two. Uh- Okay, well, yeah, I got a couple. Okay, well, maybe get to them. But for right now, I'm going to talk about myself and say I'm trying to make 2020 a year where I learn some new things and really focus on some of my existing creative passions. And this is why I think Skillshare is awesome. It's an online learning community where millions of curious minds come together to continue on their own creative journeys. They have thousands of classes with topics ranging from graphic design to photography to web development to crafts. Um, and because I'm really trying to work on upping my writing practice in 2020, you know. I'm checking out the course my guy. Um, I'm checking out this course, Creative Writing for All, a 10-day journaling challenge, which is taught by Emily Gould. I'm a writer I've liked for years, so I was so excited to see her teaching a course. And it's a course that gives you some simple practices to write a little bit every day. And at the end of the course, she shows you how to put it all into a piece of writing. Um, It's awesome. I'm excited to check out more courses. Now, one of the best parts about Skillshare is how affordable it is uh, compared to taking a class in person, especially. The annual subscription is less than $10 a month. That's pretty cheap. Uh, and you can get two months of free premium membership right now by going to Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack. So why not learn something new in 2020? It makes way more sense than that gym membership that you'll use three times and they'll <laughs> keep charging your car and you can't get out of the membership. So go to Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack today and start your free two-month premium membership. Now, we are also sponsored today by another awesome place called Likewise. Now, I don't know about our listeners but if you ever find yourself endlessly scrolling through your streaming service or Spotify or a podcast app. Oh, what, yeah. Yeah, right? And we're like, what do I watch? What do I watch? There's so much out there. It's overload. Well, this is where Likewise comes in. It's an app that helps you discover what to watch or read next. Mm-hmm. It works across all the streaming services you already use. And once you set it up, you'll not only be able to get recommendations from your friends and family, which is so much fun, um, but you'll also have access to recommendations and lists offered by Likewise. You can even use it to recommend, I don't know, show me the meaning. So, so <laughs> I'm, I'm saying, why not? Why not? Right. You get on there, you recommend it. Everyone sees that you like it. They like it. Everyone wins. And you can download likewise today. 
on the App Store or the Google Play Store by going to likewise.com slash meaning. Likewise.com slash meaning. It's an amazing way to find fresh new content and culture to consume as we head into 2020. And it'll help you avoid searching through Netflix for an hour only to be too tired to watch a movie by the time you pick something. So likewise.com slash meaning. God, we've been there. But now let's get back to Uncut Gems. Fellas. Well, one thing I, real quick, oh, one thing I didn't it. say in my uh, initial things is we didn't really talk about the form yet. I don't know if you're about to talk about the form, but I love how this is like a Cassavetes-esque mm. Robert Altman. Like, like y- y- you talked about it being, you know, building tension. I've never seen a movie that built tension, but using a really naturalistic aesthetic. Yeah, kind of like the post-dogma you- dogma style. Yeah, yeah, where it's yeah. like it's like the born it's like yeah the 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 thriller version of you know of a woman under the influence or something mm. where you're, it's a character study you're following them but it's like they man they build that tension and I anyway, think sorry Mike no no I just never apologize real quick. and I think that's such a great point I think did I hear you start saying the word born in reference to the born films. Yeah, it's not really like it as much of an epic uh, action movie as that, but it's like. But there's that, something similar know. about the way you feel, especially in the first Bourne movie. You're on the edge of your seat, the camera's shaking, we're falling, and we don't know what's going to happen. And, and there the stakes seem a bit higher because people are dying left and right. But God, if this film doesn't make you feel that same tension as we worry about one guy's basketball bets. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, isn't, it's more like the green grass board. Yeah, sorry. Go yeah, yeah, no, no. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder if something else that gets tied into that is the mixing, the sound levels. Now, I watched this at home, oh, yeah. but I bet if you watched it in a theater, it would have been even more jarring because the mix level is totally out of whack from what we would normally expect. The music levels are really high, right? And they're not subtle. They're pushed into the forefront. And not only are they cool and kind of retro in their aesthetic, and there's even like almost like the Nintendo text that comes up that circles uh, the title screen for Uncut Cut Gems, you know, the little oval that goes around it. Um, yeah. So there's like a retro thing as well with the style of music, the kind of synthy music. But also the the levels just really create this tension in me. Be- or it, They created this tension in me because it made me uncomfortable with how loud the music was and, and then how loud the street sounds were and how loud. Yeah, the well, back- I listened to an yeah. uh, interview with the Safety brothers and they actually talked about how uh, when they did the ADR, so the, the audio that you record and add after you, you do all the primary filming, normally you go in and they said it's like average to maybe have like eight pages of stuff to record. And I guess it was like almost a full other script of (laughs) all the background audio. And I guess the audio editing for the film, I don't know about audio editing, um, but supposedly was just like the most intricate job ever. Cause as we know, when you watch this film, there's constant layers of talking. And even Mm. from that first scene, when Howie goes into the jewelry shop, we, we literally hear four to five conversations happening over each other at a constant clip. So not only does it affect you, but the, the editing and the audio to go in that is so impressive. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. And, and also, it's really easy to understand. Surprisingly, with yeah. a, as much overlapping dialogue, I mean, I, I pretty I was picking up on almost everything they were saying, and it all added to it. Um, have y'all are y'all familiar with Altman stuff? Have you guys seen Nashville that uh, or Mash? 
or any of his like mm-hmm. ones that really mm-hmm. feature the overlapping dialogue. That's yes. definitely what I was feeling during this movie, where it was like, yeah, this is like a scene straight out of Nashville, but like set up in urban New York. You know, uh, well, I mean, yeah, you know, it's, it's like, like a, all these people it's were like a so much real. More polished, it's like a much more polished thing than what the mumblecore genre mm-hmm. people were trying to do, you know, which I love. I love the mumblecore films. I love that style. I love that aesthetic. Mumblecore really wasn't about, though, like the naturalism. It was just about like, you know, how cheap and easy filmmaking with, you know, in based on relationships and kind of it was more about the themes, I would say, and the format rather than the than we're trying to really replicate life and put you right there, you know? Yeah. Like, and I know really do that with a DV camera. I love how we're talking about uncut gems. And if you would have asked me, what might we talk about? Mumble core films would have been the bottom of my list. So I love this. <laughs> um, yeah, Shouts I mean, to the Duplass brothers. So but, the, but the thing that's the things- interesting though is, is with this element, like it's almost, it's, there's an intentional chaos that the Safdie brothers are trying to, to say about just the world maybe you know you what see, i mean maybe- i'm gonna jump in on this because that's okay, the yeah. question i was just about to oh, ask cool. you guys that's brilliant yeah. but no i think i think you're absolutely right austin i was gonna ask both of you like the audio chaos i think is like indicative of the more i guess we'd call it relational or structural chaos we see throughout the film so mm-hmm. i'd love to hear what both of y'all think about the the theme of chaos in the film how it's used and maybe what you think that could be getting at. yeah well if i l- let me just jump in here and I think there's something really interesting that we can tie together with chaos in relation to violence. So Mm. like I was thinking a lot about like Scorsese films and like typical mob films, which you get these guys from New York that are hassling um, Adam Sandler's character, Howard. And in my mind, I'm thinking the whole time they're going to fucking kill him. They're going to use their violence to kill him. And they don't. There's this restrained violence. Like, yeah, they, they beat him up a little bit, but they don't ever pull out a gun until the very end. Right. And I was thinking, like, why don't they do that? Like, they like when they kidnap him at his kid's play, I'm thinking, oh, fuck, they took him in a van. They're going to cut his dick off or something like that. They're going to do, you know, but they don't. They want their money. Yeah, they just want their money. They don't want to kill him. Um, and then so they're they're constantly, like, pushing up against, like, what we would think of as the typical mob violence kind of stuff that you see in the Scorsese films where it's like everybody's just fucking killing everybody all the time. But the Safdies don't paint that world. They paint a different kind of world. And it's like just this world of constant chaos and confusion. And there's like rules to it. Cause like even the people in the diamond mm-hmm. district are like, no, 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 whoa, whoa. Like don't beat anybody up. And then when he comes in with the black eyes, people are like really concerned. Like, cause that's abnormal to be physically abused. This is just gambling. It's, business it's dealing you know we don't cross that other line which i think is what makes the violence at the end so unjust like that's how it feels right because we're like i mean do you think that with what they're doing in the in the diamond district with sort of like the the laws that regulate that violence i I couldn't help but thinking about how the safety brothers are focusing on this one part of new york the diamond district where a bunch of people are hustling and scamming to try to make money right when however many you know blocks away i don't know new york well sorry um you know we have wall street where people in Mm. fancier buildings with nicer suits are doing things that are pretty similar in terms of scamming hustling trying to get on top of things so i mean did did and I know, Austin, you might have something to say about this because you're a man of finance and economics. Um, do you think there's any sort of connection there between like contemporary finance capitalism and the way in which this is a microcosm of, of larger systems at play? 
A thousand, thousand percent. I just want to say something real quick and then I'll kick it over to Ryan. There's a book written by a guy named Ole Bjerg, who is a a scholar in a business school in Copenhagen, but he does a lot of work on finance and gambling. So his first Mm. book is on poker and then his next book is on money. It's called Making Money, I think. And then his his most recent book is on like growth and uh, finance capital or actually what he calls the post-growth world. But he he looks at gambling and the sign of the compulsive drive that gamblers um, kind of uh, exhibit and how that relates to contemporary neoliberal financial capitalism. And that we live in a world of just like creation for the sake of creation's sake, which is kind mm. of similar to the gambler's compulsion, which I think fits into why we feel why the Safties can't give us a happy ending at the end. Because if they do that, then they kind of like tie a nice neat bow on what is otherwise just this pure world of drive that doesn't have goals or anything. And he wasn't going to be happy if he got that money. You know, he'd just repeat the same patterns because he's compulsive. He's pathological. So I think absolutely this is a larger, uh, we can, it's like an aperture into a larger economic tendency. Yeah, I was going to basically say similar things that, you know, this movie's first and foremost about a degenerate gambler. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and, and yeah, they're addicted to risk. And, you know, it's funny you brought yeah. up the Wall Street thing because, yeah, like, I don't think it's explicitly said, you know, made the comparisons made. But yeah, those people are, are, that is what they make their money in is risk assessment and, and, and putting money where their mouth is, you know, and say, let's let it ride and, and whatever. And that whole mentality, which I actually, you know, when I was watching the movie too, I, I don't know about you guys, but I was a little confused because they didn't at first, cause they weren't really specifying the stakes. You don't, you don't really know the exact amount of money he always is right. in need of. Whereas a, a normal Hollywood movie would tell you, Oh, I need this amount of money <laughs> to save the car wash or whatever the fuck. But like this movie is like, yeah, he just owes money in general. And I think that definitely was by design, like that they're not uh, specifying it because I mean, it, it, it is just, he's addicted to just, Putting it out there, like, uh, you know, for one, like, I don't think it, it, in the movie he has a fucking penthouse. He has a nice family and a nice home and all, you know, it seems like he has money, but it seems like he's definitely risking enough to where these bad guys are after him to where it's important. But he never seems to care or uh, like a normal person would right. like he like he he doesn't uh, uh, reach these decisions like a normal person where, you know, there's like two or three times in the movie where, like you said, you put your hands in your face. You're like, what the fuck? Why mm-hmm. are you doing this? You have it all, <laughs> you know, or you don't need to do this, but he's addicted to it. And so getting back, piggyback or going back to uh, uh, the sound design and stuff that I think that that's what they're trying to put you in the world of is mm. just the chaos of, of degenerate gamblers. Like their life is just, you know, a mile a minute and, and, you know, you're always trying to come up with your next scheme to, uh, to, uh, bandaid the last scheme that you fucked up. Right. And well, he's yeah, trying to spread, a, a, he's trying to spread his risk, right? He's trying to mitigate uncertainty through risk management. So he's paying these people with these people's money and then paying it here. And he's not ever deleveraging, right? He's not ever actually eradicating his debt is what we would say. He's, mm. he's using his leverage to spread his risk so that it's not concentrated in a single point. Or in other words, he's diversifying his portfolio. Yeah. Right. Like, right. Yeah, but, but, the then he, but then he, win, he wins out and he doesn't, he doesn't need to make another bet, but he still does it. Why? Why does he do he's that? Because he's an addict. Yeah. And that, an that's addict. Exactly. that's interesting yeah. too go. is like with, with addiction in film, there's so many examples of like, alcohol or drug addiction being explored in film it's pretty rare to have gambling as the addiction that's at the center of a film i mean there's some examples but a gambler with uh con well, what's that movie yeah. with ben uh, ra- with rounders 
No, no. Uh, well, God, what's the oh, it's a I love rounders. Mississippi, Mississippi grind. Is that what it was called? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a yeah, really good grind. movie on this. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. You're right. But, but it's like a more foreign type of addiction because I think not to be the too sting. dark, but like everyone's known a, a a a drunk or a drug addict in their life. I'm sorry that you've had to, but we've all known that. I feel yeah. like I don't know. I've never known a gambling addict, or at least that I, I saw it outwardly. Oh, so I, it's I know several, world. and I love gambling personally. <laughs> I'm definitely in this world, <laughs> but yes. I so I I definitely can relate, and I see this guy. I see Adam Sandler character in some friends of mine yeah i i, I, I used get to it, be you know? i guess I, I i guess i am a gambling addict and i have had to cut myself off from it for me my my weakness was poker i for from when i was 17 till probably even god within the last few years i mean i i'd say within the last five years i've kind of been able to get it under control where i don't even go to the casino anymore but Congrats. I used to go all the time, bro. When we were in Scotland, like I don't know if it was when we. Were I was gonna together. say, listeners okay. might not know this, but <laughs> about a decade ago, so when we were <laughs> what fourteen and sixteen respectively, um, Austin and myself were roommates in Scotland, and I remember a few nights where I heard the door open <laughs> really late or really in, early or mornings. Th- yeah, yeah. Thought to myself, bars aren't open that late, and then heard like, oh, I was at the casino. Yeah, it was as, as an average grad student does. I, I did have a compulsion to the game of poker. And for me, it was never sports betting. Um, I didn't really get into blackjack and shit like that. It was the game of poker. And I can. Yeah, it's so fun. Yes. And, and I and I get it. Like, it wasn't even about like you feel a rush even when you lose. Right. Like there's something about it because it continually like pulls you back into the game because you can get the game better it's about mastering the game and you become this player and i think that 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 fits into what's going on here is that's why when sandler makes that comparison to garnett about him this is his this is his nba right he's not a professional basketball player this is his game that he plays that he's a master of and I think that for me is really interesting because he's lying to himself in one sense. He thinks that he's a master. He thinks he's in control of it. But then we realize that, that I think that actually it's in control of him or it's this it's this dynamic tension between the two. Yeah, I wonder if the, that gambling theme doesn't touch on at all. This kind of the theme of like hustle culture that people talk about, because yeah. while other characters in the film aren't gambling, um, you know, the Lakeith Stanfield character is honest hustle, getting clients, hiding his fake watches. Julia is clearly out here in clubs doing whatever she's doing with the weekend to try to get clients as well. And this idea, you know, you'll see like a shirt at your local soul cycle class or something that's like bet on yourself. I don't know if that exists, but there's that kind of logic of like hustle, bet on yourself take risk like work hard and in a weird way it was like sandler's character is just the like extreme other side of that line but most people in the film were were engaging in some type of behavior like that this episode is brought to you by paramount plus get in loser mean girls is now streaming on paramount plus join katie heron as she meets the plastics and tina fey's new twist on the modern classic get ready for more of the rumors backstabbing and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises rated pg-13 wear pink and head to paramountplus.com to try it free so like everybody in the film was compulsive in their own way or pathological in their own way well, I mean, and maybe that's like a New York thing or a commentary on uh, what it's like to try to get money in contemporary society. Yeah. But it seemed like that was another underlying theme of like everyone is trying to get it however they can get it. Let me ask you this. KG. This is, this is going to sound like a weird thing, but I wanted to ask both of you because a film that popped into my mind as I was watching this 
was The Killing, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. And they're okay. different but similar in the, in these senses. So The Killing is all about this heist, right? This crew of people that are trying to knock off what it was, it was a racetrack. And they get away with it at the end. But then because of the Hayes Code at the time that the film was made, you couldn't show bad guys getting away with crimes. So what happens? The bag on at the airport gets knocked over and all the money gets blown away in the wind, right? And that's viewed as like <laughs> like a justice for the against the criminal because you can't show the bad guys getting away with a crime. Now, something similar is going on here. We're, our expectations, we're rooting for Sandler to get out of this cycle, just like we're rooting for the, the gamblers or for the, the criminals, I guess, the crooks to get away with the heist and the killing. But it's different because this is framed through like psychological addiction. And so the reason mm. that we, we can't let Sandler get away or you can't let Howard get away with it is because that would almost like justify his addiction or it almost like makes mm-hmm. it good or something like that. So it's like, you can't expose Howard to more self-harm. So it's almost like it's still got like a, there's something going on here, but we feel unjust about it still, right? Like we wanted Sandler to win, just like you want the criminals to get away with it. We feel like it's not right, but they're making a statement by doing something kind of like, no, you can't have that cathartic ending, but it's different than it was, you know, in like the fifties or sixties when I think it's the fifties when the killing is made because the, well, yeah. And it's, it's oddly beautiful at the end too, because I think in our mind, like either he's going to win the bet and then pay them off, which I think in our head, we're like, but how does that work out? That seems too clean. Or as I think we expect, he's going to lose the bet and he's fucked, but he wins the bet and gets shot in the face immediately. So it's like, Both right. sides getting mixed. And I think that's the jarring part about it. Um, I, I did wonder, well, I, and Ryan, you oh, brought sorry. this up before. Oh, go ahead. I, I, I was just going to add, you know, I, I've seen some people say like, like that or, or justify that, that, that moment, like he won the bet, like he was on top of the world and he went out on top. Yeah. In a, in mm-hmm. a, in a weird way, even though with a, it was with a bullet through his mind, his, his fucking brain. Is it almost a, yeah. gracious, but, uh, is it a gracious act? Like it puts him out of his misery? I don't know. No, well, it's not a gracious attack by that guy that was just trying to, you know, was just no. I mean, by the by the safties. Well, but maybe it is by by them because he's fucking miserable, and the only time you see him really come to grips with who he actually is in his addiction is when he's in the office after he gets beat up with Julia when they make up, and he's bawling about everything's a mess. I'm a loser. I can't win. I can't get on top of things. He's fucking miserable. Even though we don't see his misery, we just see him constantly doing to manage and manage and manage and then repress his actual having to to actually face the fact that he's fucking miserable by playing this game. So is there a sense in which right, it's but, almost like like he's euthanized? Well, it's, well yeah. I, but, but the guy, it was a pure act of aggression yeah. by that by that that dude who's an awesome actor. A fucking great actor. Yeah. Uh, no, but yeah. it just reminds me of like, you know, you have that creepy uncle that tells you that uh, that he wants to die in the middle of, of committing a coital act to someone who's not your aunt. And then you got to process <laughs> a few things there. But but his point, of course, is like, I want to go out on top. Of, go out on of top. Yeah. Someone else that's not your aunt. I don't know. No, my uncles talk like that. I'm not from Jersey. Um, but I wonder. So this is also related to the <laughs> conclusion of the film. And I think both of you referenced this at the top. Do we get any any moral message or is there kind of in, in in ethic at the end of this film or is it just bleak meaninglessness what do y'all think's going on there yeah right 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's don't be a degenerate gambler. This is what it'll lead to is one of it. I mean, I, I, the question I was going to pose to you guys is, do you guys, what do you guys think the Safties feel about this guy? I mean, I, 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 I've seen a few interviews. I mean, the, the, they don't think he's a loser, but like, like, do you guys think that, I mean, I guess this is tied into your question about, about, I mean, they chose to kill this guy in this manner, in this very abrupt, jarring way in their movie, you know, that they had built all this tension up for. This is a very, you know, bold decision that they made. And yeah, I don't know. I'm conflicted on what I think that they mean mm-hmm. by it. Um, I, I do think it is something, you know, the, the whole movie just being so naturalistic to begin with. I do think it is about just the chaotic, you know, you, nature and you're, you're fucked, you know, uh, you're, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. But I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I think, I think we root for Sandler. We're rooting for him to win. We're rooting for him to find harmony, some kind of stability in the midst of the chaos. We're rooting for that, but we also pity him. And I think that the Safety brothers might pity this man who is degenerate in the literal sense of the term, right? And so I wonder if the title of the film, Uncut Gems, doesn't speak to this, right? Like, like are humans uncut gems that were worlds of beauty? Because there's all these amazing moments of like transcendence and beauty in the mystical where we go into the stone or at the very end you go into the bullet mm-hmm. hole, which is interesting. You go into the hole of violence, right? To go into Sandler, into this beauty. And then, of course, remember when the stone connects to his colon? So it's like there's something about... Uh, when he like, says at one point, you know, they say you can see the whole universe when you look yeah. into this thing. Yeah. So is there well, it, it's like I, Sartre has this amazing essay for people out there that I know Michael really loves on Kierkegaard called the singular universal. Um, but the idea is, is that like that. OK, I'm going to oversimplify it, but that the universal is contained in the particular, in the singular. So you can look at a rock and the entire universe is there. Or for Sartre, the entire history of the world of manufacture is contained in this ballpoint pen that I'm holding. So we can look about- That's like, some medieval shit, dude. Like steel production, you can understand um, uh, like uh, like minerals, you can understand plastic, which then leads you into like the fossil fuel industry and how you burn plastics, right? Like everything is contained in this pen. The history of writing, Shakespeare is contained in this singular ballpoint pen. If you just kind of- attune yourself appropriately to the universal dimensions that are in there. And I was thinking a lot about that. And then I was thinking, so then like, are we uncut gems? You know, like there's this unpolished wildness, the drives, you know, that are exhibited or exemplified by his addiction to gambling. And then the mess that he kind of continues to put himself in. He's a miserable human. There's this uncutness about it. But at the same time, you know, that you can cut gems, you can modify them, you can fit them into society, you can... I, I mean, there's something going on here, and I thought that, that might have been part of the ethic. Well, that this and, and even this makes me think of the beginning of the film, right? Because they do something really interesting. The opening scene, you know, the film opens in Ethiopia with someone that has a horrific leg injury uh, uh, at a diamond mine. And yeah. then we see two guys go back into the mine themselves to uncover what ends up being uh, Howard Sandler char- Sandler's character's opal. Um, so, so even the way in which in the diamond district, it's all this flash and like a uh, Furby eyeball necklace and stuff (laughs) but all of that emerges from a real like dark place there's like there's a violence um inherent in the production of this stuff and i did like that the film dropped that in Mm. as a reminder and i do think they did that in a a self-aware way 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mm. Um, well, it, it's such an awesome way to start your movie. And it really like, like yeah, exactly what you just said. It, it contextual recontextualizes the, the entire film. Like if you had just seen the whole movie without that opening mm-hmm. scene, you know, it means it's it's different. Like whereas as they're definitely playing with the whole like like you said, we're all everything's connected. One one action leads to a, a butterfly effect reaction down the line, and you know it's all like you said before, uh, uh, Austin. You know the universe is and everything. You know and whatever yeah. we're all connected. Blah blah blah. Um, and I thought that was a really cool cinematic way to begin your movie. And isn't yeah, it and also it comes like back around. Relevant. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead, brother. Oh, I was going to see it even comes back around when KG says to Sandler, like, well, you know, how much did you pay these guys in Ethiopia? Yeah. Uh, and kind of implies like, oh, you don't, you know, you don't have to pay them for it because they're just some Ethiopian guys. So even in that moment, like the the morality of, of like global relations coming into question was really interesting. And then, yeah, I think I think that that was their critique on capitalism, too, you know, because like yeah. Adam Sandler says, he's like, look, I'm just, you know, I'm this is a loophole, whatever. I'm exploiting it, you know, like I'm giving him this much and I'm going to sell it for this much. Yeah. That's capitalism, baby. I'm I'm a winner now. And he's just like, yeah, but you, you know, you're also kind of whatever, you know, Kevin Grant was like. Garnett was like, yeah, you're kind of fucking them over too. You're not giving them a million what it's worth. So mm-hmm. I think that was their sly, you know, uh, uh, critique of of the system. And isn't yeah, there wonder- something interesting about how they they emphasize? They have this whole moment where they emphasize that the Ethiopians are black Jews. They're not just like workers. They're also related to a religious tradition and a cultural tradition and a history that has beliefs in the divine and that there's something maybe mystical, maybe. Kabbalistic even or something about like Jewish mysticism that's related to this that opens us up to the the transcendent that kind of creates a different way of viewing the world rather than just simply in terms of production. So is that an element that I think we should focus on or is it just because of my previous study into religion that I focused on that? I don't know. We're I mean, just, they definitely just bring it up several times. Talking about so I'm not Jewish so I, I, I definitely think I wasn't getting some of the maybe inside baseball of that, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I will say in a, in a much less esoteric and beautiful way than Austin was saying, (laughs) um, it was cool to see the representation of American Judaism in the film, even from like the Passover scene, Mm. because I couldn't help but think, and as someone that, uh, regularly gets to participate as the token Goyim in, in Passover meals, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, think about how many films where we have a Thanksgiving meal or Christmas meal as a set piece. It was really cool to see that. Um, and to have that be a centerpiece of it and even to have the part where like and obviously we don't know uh, you know where Howard's character was in the birth order but when talking about the plagues at the Passover Seder you know he brings up the death of the firstborn mm. um, and, and this this sort of the ideas of plagues and death that are haunting people seem to connect then with him getting murked at the end mm. yeah because he does say that like it can still happen, right? He's making a joke to his kids, but he's yeah. like, it, it can happen at any time. The death of the firstborn yep. can happen. It, it, he's like, it could still happen, right? And he's making it as a, like a joke to his kids, but maybe that's a foreshadowing of himself. I, don't I know. didn't even pick up on that. Neither did I, yeah. but yeah, that um, could be. Well, 
before we don't got to start wrapping up yet, but before we do, there's one topic I wanted to make sure I asked y'all about. Um, and we talked about the chaos of the film, but I was really struck by the way in which the, the speed of the film itself induced a sort of anxiety. Um, I know yeah. it, in myself throughout the film. And I know when I left, I was, I was like hustling down the street. I had to yeah. stop myself because I realized I was power walking because hmm. I was so jacked up. And then I noticed this watching it a second time. I didn't have that feeling. I was almost able to like take a breath and just mm. take it in. So, I, I mean, what do we think about how, how the pacing of this film produced an anxiety in the audience? Like uh, to me, that seemed pretty significant and it was, I don't know how to articulate why it was important, but I found it really affecting. I mean, isn't this in some ways uh, maybe an unconscious or I mean, I'm sure it's not unconscious because they're obviously master filmmakers, but there's like an almost unintended ethic or I don't, I hesitate to use the word moral, but that a filmmaker projects through their formal and aesthetic product. So it's like they're, I don't know, are they intentionally trying to induce anxiety so that we feel the, the consequences of being a degenerate gambler or the, the consequences of the contradictions of the capitalist system or something like that? Like, are they intending that? And we do feel, yeah, Yeah. there's a lack of reflection in all the decisions. Every decision gets made without any thought, any reflection. And that's why as the audience were like, oh shit, don't do that. Oh shit, don't do that. Because it's just going down this chaotic hill. So it was like, that's what I mean. Is that like a warning for, from the Safties? They're like, yeah, this is what happens so that you, the audience feel it. I don't think it's like a moralism, but it's almost like that's a byproduct, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, what I was going to say was that, uh, uh, I think first and foremost, they're trying to make just a badass yeah, movie totally. that is very entertaining. Yeah. You know, that, that uh, I think that, that, that when I said they're the real deal before, what, what I've been waiting for forever, my whole life is people to, you know, make, a very engaging, entertaining, crowd pleasing art, you know, art movie that, that is, you know, fun to watch, but says a lot, you know, uh, too, at the same time. And the, not many of those filmmakers exist, you know, even like the people I love, like Martin Scorsese, you know, makes, you know, very, uh, uh, uh epic films, but like, like they're, they're, they're not as gritty as like I want, as I like, you know, Sam, Sam Raimi is one of my favorite filmmakers, but you know, n- no one's doing what the Safdie brothers are doing right mm-hmm. now. And they, they understand that, you know, they want to make people movies that people want to actually go out and see, but also that are totally true to life and, you know, and to themselves. And I commend them for it. And, uh, uh, uh what was the thing that you were just saying, uh, uh Mike about anyway, like, like for one, that the the fact that they start the movie by going up his ass, okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they they're making these bold choices. Oh yeah, I, I, I remember it was about the tension. Yeah, you know, the, the, they're 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 basically one of the most addicting things in film is is uh, your hero making obviously bad decisions. It's like so cringeworthy. You 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 want to sit there and go, why why you're yelling at the screen? It's like in horror movies a lot. You know, uh, but you you really see it in a thriller like this, where your your hero, who's not that likable, but somehow you you're rooting for, you know, is yeah. They just get storytelling. Oh yeah, and then also the uh, uh, the, the 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 punch ins, unlike the ringing doorbell and stuff like that motif. You know how it's like they're, they're constantly having to open the door, buzz people in, and they're and they're 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 showing those punch ins and stuff. They they use that as a tension device um in their supernaturalistic uh, uh aesthetic for the rest of the movie it's just a really cool mix 
And then you mix in that with the really natural, realistic actors and you get this bizarre movie. Yeah. Um, and I would definitely say if anyone has seen this once and if you have the time and this was recommended to me by our wisecrack comrade, Helen, um, watch it again because it's so different once you know mm. that he's going to catch mm. that little little metal piece of candy right in the noggin at the end. Mm. <laughs> uh, once that anxiety is alleviated, you kind of can step back and, and, and he becomes more of like a, a tragic figure when you, when you know where he's going. So, you know, when, when it hits streaming or whatever, watch it again. Um, well... Before we head into mailbag stuff and voicemail stuff, any any final thoughts on this one? I mean, the only thing that I was thinking that I was, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but I was thinking that there's really interest. I, I just, the title, I can't get out of my head, like uncut gems, right? Like it's not just about this black opal that is uncut, that is supposed to be worth a particular amount. But here's the interesting thing. It gets undervalued in its appraisal. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like there's a sense in which there's a tension between what it is in its potency and how it's valued once it's incorporated or appropriated into the system. And I wonder if we can't think of it similarly, like with humans, that we have these drives that are universal, that are beautiful, that speak of the whole universe, that open us up to the infinite. But at the same time, you always have to be welcomed into the symbolic, right? Mm. Uh, You have to be welcomed into the world of desire. You can't just exist at the world of drive. And if you just become pure drive, your demise is ultimately going to lead to death. I'm sorry, your end is ultimately going to lead, or I guess what, what it leads to is your demise. And that's what ends up happening with uh, Howard and Adam Sandler is that he's just a figure of pure drive. That's why he's tragic is that he can't fit himself into the world of the symbolic appropriately. It's not enough for him. And so he can't adjust appropriately, which is why he's, he's degenerate and sick ultimately in the literal sense. So awesome. Would you say that like, like, uh, like Kevin Garnett and Adam Sandler, when they both look at the gym for the first time, you know, they both have, you know, like that Adam Sandler has that awesome moment where he just looks up and goes, I want to come or I'm going to come. You know? and, then, and then Kevin Garnett, you know, he's looking into it and he sees the universe and then he he like smashes the uh, thing and he's yeah. uh, the, the glass. He's like, that's a sign. Now, it seems like in the movie they have like a similar reaction, but it's at the end of the day. Adam Sandler, I feel like, is looking at it and going, I'm going to make so much money off of this. You know, look at this amazing thing. And then Kevin Garnett is really being like, you know, he like he he appreciates it for what it is. And he just happens to be rich enough to purchase it. I mean, uh, yeah. do you take anything from that? Like, uh, yeah, do you agree with I, that? I think that Kevin, Kevin Garnett is the foil because he's the one who can be embraced into mm. or incorporated into the system of desire, into the symbolic order through the game that he plays, which is why at the end when he's being interviewed, it's a heroic celebration that he just engaged in what Adam Sandler believed was the same type of compulsive activity, that drive activity. But it's not. It's different. It's a game with rules that Garnett follows and there's a goal to it, which is the end to win. And then, of course, to silence his doubters, because that's what Garnett is saying, like, what, you didn't think I could fucking do this and that I wouldn't show up in game seven? Of course, I'm going to show up in game seven. So there's, again, this relation to this external thing like you don't think I can do this I can do it and Sandler kind of thinks he has a similar goal but he doesn't he he doesn't quite understand 
anything outside of himself, which is why he doesn't ever say I love you to Julia Fox's character until the very end when he yeah. wins. She keeps saying I love you to him and he doesn't ever say it back, which means that he's lying when he does say I love you, I think. He's just – I don't think he really does love her. He's just – she's just kind of another component in his larger compulsive tendency. You oh, know? Yeah, I think we see that in the moment where when his, his wife is, is trying on her bar, bat mitzvah dress, he's like, I'm done with her. Um, I want uh, you back because, yes. you know, I think – we, we kind of see that he's he's just trying to find affirmation wherever he can get it on his way to the next big score. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, we all liked it. Everyone should watch it. Uh, <laughs> and of course, we would love to hear what you think about it. So just as a reminder for everyone, you can hit us up via email at movies at wisecrack.co. No M, just co. Um, or give us a call at 213-534-8807. And along those lines... Um, I guess we have some some voicemails and mailbag stuff from the last one. Um, so let's let's maybe start with a voicemail we have on Parasite. Sadly, I didn't get to be a part of it, but just listen to it, and you all had a, a hell of a discussion on another movie that was great. So let's listen to what our buddy Ethan had to say about Parasite. Hey, this is Ethan. I just listened to the Parasite podcast, and I think it's just the best movie of the year. I'm I'm bummed that it's Ooh. not nominated for yeah. a Golden Globe for best film. Um, but anyways, there's, I saw the whole movie three times and there's one line that the dad says after the flooding of his house, he's lying on the ground and he says to his son, um, you know, whatever you do, none of it matters. You betray your country, you kill someone, like it all doesn't matter. And you know, there's, there's that nice foreshadowing to him killing somebody at the end. But my real question is, does that, does that like... Do you think that foreshadows the son's inevitable failure at the end? You know, he says his son has this nice goal to go and make a lot of money so he can free his dad. Do you think his dad is foreshadowing things? Whatever you do, it doesn't matter. Mm. Or do you think that this this dad, by committing murder, you know, where he's showing the audience that it, you know, kind of does matter that you kill someone. Now his whole life has been destroyed. Um, so I don't know. I just like your thoughts on that. Uh, thanks. Fellas, what do you guys think? I don't have any immediate thoughts. Yes, I agree. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, that was that was a good voicemail. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything to add. I think that that's just an, like he was asking, like, do I think it's this or do I think it's that? I mean, it very well could be either. But I I do like the idea that it's like there's almost a fatalism, right? It, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't on the Parasite episode, so I'm sorry, Ethan. I might be speaking out of turn here. Uh, plug your ears if you don't want to hear my dumb thoughts on this. I get <laughs> it. Um, but I, I do think that that scene where they're in like the the shelter or whatever, and the dad kind of says like it doesn't matter. I feel like at that point too is kind of making a commentary on them and their class position in society, almost saying like, "Hey, um, we're at the bottom of the dregs, man. We live in the alley where people piss out their soju." Like doesn't mm. matter no one cares about you mm. a sort of fatalism there and i think you see that at the end you know at the end of parasite when we see you know his, his vision for and i'm gonna get a job and i'm gonna make money and i'm gonna free him like we know he's not gonna do that we we of course know it's never going to happen because sadly the the way this the cards are stacked against him he, his desires maybe don't matter in society in that way and i think that's why there's a sort of I guess fatalism that's just based on where you happen to fall in society and what your possibilities are the same way that for one family in parasite rain means devastation for another. It means, Oh, our garden looks great. 
<laughs> yeah, and you can play and you can put your tent out there and it's romantic and you can fuck because that's when they start banging and yeah. they get turned on. Yeah, exactly. And you have a cool Native American party, which is totally appropriate. Everyone should do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think Austin, you're 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 in charge of the mailbag right now. I think you're the the mailman, the Carl Malone. One could say that's right. Uh, I'm to reference post basketball again. Yeah. So let's <laughs> let's get into that mailbag, buddy. All right. So we got one from uh, Luis who says, uh, "Hey, wisecrack, love everything you do. Please keep it up. We shall." Um, I was thinking that the parasite might be the idea that living in a capitalist society induces upon us that we should make money to be emphasized in the sense that this idea is not intrinsic to human being or human survival and that once you put it there, it creates the distinction between those who have it, those who don't, and what are people willing to do to have it. And then it goes on and says, like you discussed with hustle mentality and the idea that you must step on somebody else to get where you want. I felt that putting a poor family through this struggle was to highlight that this is not something that rich people do because they are ruthless. This is something that sadly has to be done per the rules of this system. And this is so because capitalism infects us to behave in these ways. What do you think? I just want to say this. I'm actually really surprised at the adeptness of cultural criticism and like economic criticism that our audience have with their emails and their thoughts in this. And maybe it's, I don't know if the film is like inspiring people to study more or think more, but the stuff that we've been getting in relation to Parasite has been really insightful. So, but yeah, what do you think? Does, is the film talking about Money makes you be like you become human or you are less than human or you are trapped. In I've it. learned we got a whole bunch of damn commies. In our <laughs> audience, man. That's what that's what I've learned. God damn. Oh, no, it's Ryan's going on this whole McCarthy era thing. I apologize. <laughs> he is classifying emails and will be doing an investigation. We, we apologize in advance. <laughs> yeah, I wonder it was any was anybody upset at Parasite? Like if you're like a really hardcore, like say you're a Wall Street bro and you watched Parasite, can you still enjoy the film or are you like, fuck yeah, you? They love it. All, all these rich people like I mean, you got some shit online, you know, like Obama that that, that you know, is, is quite a wealthy cat. Uh, he liked it. Uh, Chrissy Teigen, who is very wealthy, was talking about she liked it. I think a lot of very rich people like it because. I don't know. I mean, maybe you can like it because in the film, it's not like the Park family are evil. Like they're yeah. not bad. That's no. just their class position within society. And I think there's a way that, that, and I think that's the interesting thing about this film. I don't think it'd be doing so well and getting so much great coverage if it made people feel like alienated or shat upon. Mm. Um, I, 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 I can answer this, Austin, because I <laughs> love the fuck out of this movie and I am, you know, a libertarian. I am on the, yeah. a liberty. I'm on the other side of this, yeah. you know, He's so, rich. When, but, 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 but it, it's not because I'm just so like, Oh, I believe in capitalism so much that that's my religion or whatever. It's like, I to bring it back to uncut gyms. You know, I see the world and the universe and time and history, you know, as this chaotic thing that, you know, we've managed to somehow put into some order and make a couple good systems to, you know, that are perfect that, you know, you can figure out how to do well in. So like, I, 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 I totally take every, uh, you know, uh, criticism of capitalism, you know, seriously, and I love Parasite and what it's saying, you know, but also I, I, I believe that people can, you know, I believe that guy at the end can fucking work and do what he says, even though, yeah, like you said, it's unlikely, but it's like it's possible, mm. you know, and so I do believe it. I'm an optimistic person at the end of the day. So I Probably do think yeah. that, you know, you can appreciate this movie if you're, you know, capitalist 
minded like I am. Yeah. I guess. And just to quickly uh, comment on that email before we go on to the next one, I do think there's an interesting idea there with like you need money to be, and there's mm-hmm. like a gradation of, of existence and sort of how yeah. much you matter or exist in society. And what we see in the film is certain people that exist that are present that we see everywhere and other people that almost exist in the shadows on the cobblestone stairways and the basements of things. So I think that's a really interesting point. And, and to second what you already said, Austin, why mm-hmm. wisecrack listeners and viewers are, are the best. Honestly, uh, it, it, I'm, so I'm smart. literally baffled by emails that I get, DMs that I get, the questions that, that people ask. Uh, it actually, yeah, I'm always impressed. So I'm fucking impressed, man. It gives me hope. Like if there's so much shit going on in social media and we constantly bang our heads about how stupid the blue check marks can be sometimes, I have hope for uh, human beings, especially the Zoomer yeah. generation, man. You guys are fucking love, I love sharp so as shit, man. Um, uh, okay, someone me- wants to, they can go back to the culture binge where I just talk about <laughs> Zoomers for half an hour and they had to like shut me up. Sorry, more emails. Yeah, well, okay. Um, so this one is from Cyprian. This is changing gears a little bit. First of all, I love the name Cyprian. That's beautiful. Um, but this is about Irishmen. Uh, so, and it's about the issue of leaving the door open, which we talked a little bit about. So, hi, Wisecrack. I really enjoyed your discussion about this scene and particularly Austin's reading of it. That's why I chose this email. Thank you, Cyprian. <laughs> wow. uh, nonetheless, I have a simpler reading. That is, Frank is just afraid of death and he wants the door to be left open. Why might that be? Maybe because he's afraid to die alone or he wants to be heard in case he's about to die and needs help. Anyway, I believe this might, uh, this might, be an act that people who know that they're going to die might soon do. My grandfather, who passed away, rest in peace, brother, um, used to ask me to leave the door open every time I was visiting him. He had a history of strokes, and the doctor told him that the next one might be fatal. Sorry if my email was too dark, but at Wisecrack, that's probably the standard. I'm a huge fan of your podcasts. Keep cracking wise, Cyprian. I I hate to say this, but... Sounds like your grandpa was a hitman, dude. <laughs> oh boy! Oh boy! <laughs> I'm, what? <laughs> it's probably the family's going through stuff, and you're out here like, no, he killed people. Uh, uh, hey, to be uh, fair, that sounds I, like a joke that Michael would make on Twitter. So, I mean, this is this yeah, is but with my voice, the right and a level. sweetheart. All right, I'm sorry. I apologize. No, that's a good. That's it. a good reading. Also, you guys, great episode in the Irishman. I, I listened to it right after watching it. Um, that's a good read. I I mean, are we, there is something like I, I recently went through a big gnarly health scare, right? And the thing that was overwhelmingly present in my emotional state and my thoughts was that no matter what you die alone, I can't remember if we talked about this on the Irishman podcast, but I was terrified of that. I was looking around me in a country that isn't the country where my family are and the majority of my really close friends are. And I remember thinking that I was alone and you get scared that you're not, you don't have someone to just fucking hold your hand. And there was something beautiful about the elderly couple across from me that I really bonded with them and their kids. And, you know, they, the married couple had been together for like 40 years. And I think the gentleman has, has passed now, but there was something so amazing about seeing connection and family and not being alone in the midst of this terrifying ordeal where you are alone, no matter what. And so there's this weird tension. And so I do wonder if there's something about leaving that door open because it's like, you can't be alone. And even though he's isolated from his children at the end of the film and he only has them through his pictures, he can somehow not be alone. And and then, of course, who's the people that are gazing in at him? It's us, the audience. So there's this weird, like, voyeurism almost. Yeah. I, I don't know. Can I say the only thing y'all missed when talking about the Irishman is just that really it's a movie about snitching and how he was a, a <laughs> goddamn snitch. The movie shouldn't have been made because he should have kept his damn mouth shut. 
<laughs> sorry, sorry. I care about these things. Um, Snitches end up in. Yeah. Do we got any anything else in your in your mailbag, Mail Santa? Yeah. So I got one more that I'll do. So this is a meta question from Ooh. Alexandra. So it says, "Hi, great people from Wisecrack. I'm recently become a patron." And uh, thank you. Yeah, I've been yeah. expecting to get a raise this month. Hopefully, this case I did it. So I'm a patron. Uh, much love from Sao Paulo, Brazil. So thank you so much, Alexandra. Um, so first of all, I'd like to thank the channel, inspiring me, all this other stuff. Uh, so thank you for all that. It's a long email, so I'm just going to jump to the question. Now to the important question: What the fuck has happened to society that we are enjoying more meta commentary on the shows we like that we can't perceive the honestly and shameless parody of the world we live in and that they are portraying? And this is in all caps with a lot of question marks and exclamation points at the end. Wow. <laughs> that's that's a good question. Wait, I'm not sure I understand the uh, okay, question. Then, then, but then, okay, so then, then Alexandra goes on and says, so just as some context, context to my question, we've got quite a handful of shows coming, commenting on themselves, like Rick and Morty. Dan Harmon's been doing this since com- uh, Community. South Park, they've done this since season one with Terrence and Philip. Bojack Horseman, et cetera, et cetera. And don't get me started on those series that break the fourth wall that are getting a lot of attention. Fleabag, Parks and Rec, The Office, District 9, etc. So it seems like it's this, maybe we could call it the postmodern distancing, commenting on itself, irony type of thing, maybe, Michael, right? Yeah, I mean, my simple response to, to this wonderful question by this this kind person uh they should try to watch joe para talks with you on adult swim it's the only honest show on television no <laughs> one's watching it 12 minute episodes much of them are online for free but but i think there is something there like it's become well i mean why do we not have shows that are like that well because a lot of that necessitates art that is that is kind of vulnerable or maybe risks trying to say something real about humans but like that's not cool anymore that's yeah. not what we're into. And even, I don't know, like, I love Succession. I think it was one of the best shows of the year, but it's still just like this removed thing because as the audience, we're kind of like, yeah, these people are shitty though. Um, we're just not getting a lot of art that that, that that risks trying to say something earnest about humans. Don't you think that Scorsese though, to tie this into the Irishman, that he yes. is precisely a moralist? Like he is trying to say stuff constantly, which is part of the yeah. reason why his films... Like silence is a very interesting meditation on religion and the divine. You know, Wolf of Wall Street is clearly trying to say something about humans. The Irishman is clearly trying to say something about death and the end of your life. And again, the divine score says he's a Catholic. So he's like a moralist for sure, right? Yeah. Well, and I think there's there's a reason why a lot of the examples that, that I think that they had in there were TV shows. I think yeah. TV has gone so meta, so meta mm. um, to the point it's, it's becoming like self-parody. So... I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't have like a good answer, but I just really, I viscerally agree with the sentiment and I get really excited when I watch things these days. Well, let me, let me ask like you this, Michael, like real quick. And, and I don't mean to cut you off, Ryan, if you were going to jump in there, but so do you think that this is a symptom of a larger cultural tendency? Like you wrote that, that, uh, the, the, the video that we did on, um, Bo Burnham and that there's something about like, culture and the expression of culture as responding to other socioeconomic like is there something about the way that these films are reflections of these other anxieties like that we can't be honest because not only is honesty not cool but like honesty will get you killed or honesty will like it gets snuffed out or you can't be like like what like it's just impotent like what what is it 
And this is where I give a really good answer that's both insightful, um, references text and other things. We're going to punch <laughs> it in later. So I'm just going to talk right here. No, uh, I, I, I wish I had a profound response to that. And I, I think that logic does get it something, but I don't know what it is. And the best thing yeah. I can think about is a society where a lot of young people, especially are, are anxious and they're on guard and they're not sure if they're going to be able to pay for college or if they're going to get that job or what's going to happen next. And I feel like, I feel like when we're in an anxious place and we're kind of scared, we get protective and we're protective. Mm. We're not into like vulnerability. And I think that yeah. might affect the art that gets made. That's the best I got for I, that. I have or a I much got. simpler answer. Yes. Um, and I, I just think it's it's a natural evolution for one of of postmodern. For one, it's it's just fun to play with the form and aesthetic of anything, you know, like uh, just as a filmmaker in general. So, and and I think that that basically when when the screenwriters are sitting down to to write their next thing, they're gonna go, all right, we've already had the office. You know, it's this mm. super meta postmodern mm. show. We've already had this. How do we? How do we? Oh. Look, uh, you know, top that. Let's comment on the show itself again. You know, mm. it's like double commenting, double post, yeah, post, yeah. postmodern. Everyone's trying to out, <laughs> out modern, modern, modern themselves and out irony <laughs> themselves. And it is fun. It's intoxicating. It's a, it's, I like it. It's entertaining. You know, I don't get sick of the, that form usually, but it is at the end of the day, you know, you don't have the feels, man. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, mm. it's, it's, I, I miss feeling and true emotion and and non ironic, just you know, uh, like actual stories where you're not com- you don't have to be commenting on some either you know societal thing or, or or the show itself. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah. Well, I, no, there's I mean, there's I, something to this because I think what we're getting at is like, what is the cause of this? Right? Like, is there an underlying anxiety? that is taking place at the material level that is then producing these effects. Or there's a lot of people, there's a, an art critic named John David Ebert who talks about how artists are always the first ones. They're actually ahead of time. Now, whether or not I buy this, there's something interesting in this. Like, And I think this fits into what you're saying is like, the artists are kind of like, no, we've been doing this form for a while and it's still, let's just try something new. Let's play with the form. Let's just kind of do something different. And that that then produces other changes at that kind of other material level. So it's that ideas drive things. And there does seem to be something that like when uh, when Tarantino is like laterally referring to this film and this film and that other film and this other film. And then he creates this like pastiche piece that there's something novel about it. But then it's like, so then what's next? Like we can't just keep watching Tarantino films forever and ever. So then you get something like uncut gems or you get something that is very sincere like little women you know that those films they aren't doing that kind of lateral pastiche and they're, they're doing something different so it's like what what does the artist do to just try to do something that excites them and does that wow. drive well, things i don't know what the artist does to be honest but i know what we have to do Aww. we have to sadly pull this train into the station and Aww. speaking of feelings <laughs> I, I feel like we've had a fun time. I feel like we've learned. Yeah. I feel like we've dived in, yeah. dove in, dive, have dived in to a great movie. Uh, we got great questions. And once again, keep calling, keep emailing at movies at wisecrack.co. Come back to this podcast. Come back to our other stuff. This has been so much fun. Um, I also want to add, I like Julia Fox a lot. Is all I wanted to say. And I do think she's a true artist. Uh, so for me, Michael and Austin, Yes, and hello. Hi, Goodbye. and Ryan. Yeah. This has been Show Me the Meaning. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. <laughs> <laughs>